Welcome back again, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here with another China History Podcast, part two in this little series that is deceptively billed, so far that is, is a history of Tang poetry. Anyone who wandered over to this booth to hear about Li Bai got shortchanged last episode. No Tang Dynasty poetry in part one, but at least you didn't walk away totally empty-handed. We did look at the two great classics of pre-Qin Dynasty literature, the Book of Odes, a.k.a. the Shi Jing, and the work credited to China's first literati poet, Qu Yuan of Chu State. The songs or verses of Chu, the Chu Ci. A Ci was a new and exciting form of lyric poetry that was a drastic departure from what everyone had grown used to in the Zhou and early Han Dynasty. These two most ancient works of Chinese poetry are also called the Shi Sao for the two works that make up this most hallowed duo of ancient Chinese literature. The Shi Jing and the Ci poetry that also came to be called Sao poetry because of the 92 four-line stanzas of Qu Yuan's masterpiece, Li Sao, Encountering Sorrow, a poem that throughout the centuries became synonymous with patriotism, loneliness, and a good and righteous minister wrongly rejected by his emperor, all from last episode. Today in part two, we'll trace the poetry history timeline from where we left off last time, the commencement of the Han Dynasty, when the Ci form of poetry had a big fan in the capital, Chang'an, the Emperor Han Gaozu himself. As with many other cultures, whatever was en vogue at the royal palace ultimately became the fashion followed by the aristocrats and nobles, and anyone else who had the dash to be like them. By the start of the Han, poetry had become the most common form of self-expression and social criticism. It became not only part of the government, but the political process as well. Using poetry at the royal court and amongst political colleagues allowed one to say certain sensitive things without exactly saying what it was they were trying to say. Speaking one's mind in verse was one way around the potential awkwardness of the words being spoken. About seven emperors into the eastern or latter Han Dynasty, the time of Emperor Shun, it was decided that someone had to be called in to organize and compile these verses of Chu. And not only those Ci poems attributed to Chu Yuan, but all the earlier Western or former Han imitators as well who composed their own poetry in this lyrical poetry style. One of the Han royal librarians, Wang Yi, was the natural choice to take on such a job because he originally came from Chu and was more familiar with the dialects down there and was better positioned than most to be able to interpret the essence of what Qu Yuan was trying to express in the poems that were written by him. So the definitive source for the Songs of Chu was compiled by Wang Yi into an anthology called the Chu Ci Zhang Ju. And this has come down to us as the received version of the Songs of Chu. This collection of Chu poetry is about 60 poems in all. The book is broken down into two parts. Part one includes all those poems directly attributed to Qu Yuan himself, including Li Sao, of course. And part two 
includes those tzu poems that were written by others during the Han, but were directly inspired by Qu Yuan's style. And some of these poems were also written by Wang Yi himself. But what was most important were Wang Yi's commentaries on each poem. And having these commentaries handy allowed successive generations to better understand the meaning behind all these tzu poems. And as you'll see in this episode, and those to follow in this series, after enough time passed, an emperor would send out the call to take stock of all the literature, poetry, or the sciences too, and people like Wang Yi would be called upon to oversee the effort to organize, curate, and comment on selected works and bring everything up to date. And that's how most of the poetry we have today managed to make it down to our time in these collections and anthologies. You know, the whole legend of Qu Yuan was written during the Han. I read that there's no prior mention of Qu Yuan in any historical records, and that it wasn't until a century and a half after his death in 278 BCE that we first hear of him. But whoever he was, he wrote many of these poems. So let's back up a bit and talk about a new style of poetry that emerged, clearly inspired by this tzu poetry that had become all the rage. This latest innovation in poetry was the fu style. A fu is usually translated as a rhapsody, but it's one of those things in Chinese poetry that we don't have, you know, an exact counterpart. A rhapsody, as far as we know it in the West, is a type of epic poetry, long narrative poems, the epic of Gilgamesh, the Odyssey, and Iliad, uh, the Song of Roland. They take a while to tell, and they go on and on. And they take on grand, sweeping subjects and events. The early champion of the Fu style of Chinese poetry was a young official named Jia Yi. Now, don't get him confused with Wang Yi, who I just mentioned. Jia Yi was a brilliant scholar official who rose quickly in the imperial government, despite his age. As it almost always happens, the young whippersnapper was looking to reform some of the old systems a little too fast and ran up against the conservatives who conspired together to shut Jiayi down. They convinced the Han Emperor Wen, the fourth son of the founder Gaozu, to get rid of Jiayi. And get rid of him he did, sending Jiayi down south to Changsha to do a job, oh, way below his pay grade. So during Jia Yi's period of exile, he wrote his most famous Fu works. And chief among these were Lament for Qu Yuan, Diao Qu Yuan Fu, and the Disquisition Finding Fault with Qin, or Guo Qin Lun. The other Fu masterpiece of Jia Yi was called the Fu Niao Fu, or On the Owl. In his Guo Qin Lun, he rhapsodized away at all the reasons big and small for the quick demise of the Qin dynasty. Qin Shi Huang's dynasty got thrown under the bus big time in the Han, and it was this renowned Fu poem by Jia Yi, along with the official histories written by the Han court, Sima Qian most famously, that helped contribute to driving this anti-Qin narrative. Now, one departure from the poetry up to this time was that the Fu style of poetry allowed for all kinds of fantastical language mixed with lyricism, hyperbole, and involved waxing eloquent on nauseating details. They weren't exactly poems, but weren't prose either. A fu 
was a little of both. They weren't sung. Fu's were chanted. And one of the uses of Fu poetry was to extol the greatness, virtues, and achievements of the ruling emperor and of the splendor of the ruling house. It was a fine medium to tell big, grandiose, and sometimes complicated stories. They were quite entertaining and wildly popular during the Han, when the Fu genre had its heyday. It became, and was, during the Western Han at least, the dominant style of the day. Fu's were composed for everything. There was no better way to commemorate une grande occasion, or ceremony, or achievement, than a nice, long-winded Fu poem. The greats of this genre, besides Jia Yi, included the pride of Chengdu, Sima Xiangru, as well as Yang Xiong and Ban Gu. Yang Xiong, some of you perhaps recall from that History of Chinese Philosophy series, he was also a renowned philosopher from the Old Text School. Go back and listen to Part 5 if you want to refresh your memory about Yang Xiong. By the time of Han Wu Di, seven emperors into the Western Han, the Fu style was at its peak. The Fu style of poetry didn't go out of style, though. They still composed them in the centuries that followed. The Northern Song Immortal, Su Shi, Su Dong Po, covered in CHB episode 175, one of his most famous poems were the first and second Chi Bi Fu, a Fu poem where Su Shi extolled Cao Cao as the Yi Shi Zhi Xiong, a hero for the age. And because of the silk roads that Emperor Wu had championed, there came a flood of people from all over Asia who brought their music, their literature, and their dance to Chang'an. And it was like sensation overload with so many new things being seen and heard for the first time in China. Besides all the fine work he did in centralizing power in China, uh, expanding China's borders, getting the whole Silk Road thing up and running, all the missions he sent out to the many Central Asian states or confederations, and his giving a huge boost to laminating Confucian thought onto the whole state bureaucracy and adopting the ideology at court, aside from all that, not to mention reigning for 54 years, a record that took 18 centuries to break, he established an imperial office that in its most ancient form went back to the three sovereigns and five emperors period, a government arm known as the Yuefu, or Music Bureau. And this Music Bureau set up in 120 BCE, was tasked by the Han Emperor with sorting out, curating, and archiving all this new explosion of music and poetry that had come flooding into China. And this included the sizable works of Fu poetry that had, by Han Wu Di's time, accumulated over the past decades going back to the founding of the dynasty. And not just the poetry of the elites of society, but folk poetry from the peasants as well. It wasn't just the literati who composed poetry. You see, Emperor Wu believed one of the several ways to project the power of his great and mighty empire to the world that beat a path to his capital was to show the variety of the cultures in his realm that showed how vast it was. So the Yuefu was kept quite busy during this long period of artistic and literary expression. And as we know throughout world history, not all kings and emperors were 
musical or patrons of the arts. Han Emperor Ai, who reigned 7 to 1 BCE, downright abolished the office. So this Yue Fu did its work and became like a kind of Library of Congress for all the poetry in China. And not only that, poets who were associated with the Yue Fu Music Bureau themselves would be charged with cranking out poetry for any occasion. Seems trivial to us today, but these verses that came out of this bureau were critical to all kinds of ceremonies, occasions, and rituals that propped up the whole legitimacy of the royal house. So music, poetry, royal entertainment, and religious worship were serious things back in those times. And these Yuefu officials were responsible for managing it. And any court entertainment, they had to go line up the acts, choose the music, and ensure the swells dining with the emperor were thoroughly entertained. And they also created a whole new genre themselves that became known as Yuefu poetry. It was poetry written in the style of the music bureau, and therefore took on the same name. The definitive anthology of Chinese Yuefu poetry was written much later on in the 11th century, Northern Song. The name immortalized by his association with that work of Yuefu poetry was Guo Mao Qian. The story of Mulan, uh, the tale that Disney made a zillion dollars on, that came from this anthology called the Yuefu Shiqi. So we'll move on and let's just agree that the Music Bureau served its purpose in the 1st and 2nd centuries BCE and in its compilations, analyses, and study of classical Chinese poetry, they came up with new standards and forms to take things a step further in the direction of what will ultimately be taken to greatest heights during the Tang Dynasty. You know, the basic foundation for traditional Chinese culture was dug in the Zhou Dynasty, Western and Eastern. But it was in the Han Dynasty, where people living in those times got to be the first Chinese in history to take this amazing culture out for a, out for a test drive for the very first time. Plenty happened in the Han with respect to this poetry that emerged from the Zhou philosophy, history. So many things will get their first treatment by the most brilliant and creative minds of the day, the people of the Han Dynasty. They got to be the first. You know, prior to the Han and the Qin, it wasn't such a good time for Chinese poetry. You'll surely recall Qin Shi Huang and his minister Li Si. They tried to suppress certain aspects of Chinese culture that they believed wasn't a good fit with their new legalistic view of society. There's the legend of the burning of the books and the burying the scholars that tells you right away poetry didn't enjoy any kind of heyday during the first imperial dynasty of China. Good for poetry, the dynasty didn't last long. And in the succeeding Han, New kinds of styles emerge with the backing of the imperial court in general and with this Yuefu or music bureau in particular. No doubt plenty of ancient poetry was destroyed or didn't make it out of the Qin, but enough survived and, as I said, got nice and energized right at the outset of the Han. Another style emerged, this one later on during the Eastern Han, right at the start of the Common Era, was the Gu Shi. Gu Shi. Well, just means ancient poem. 
It was the old classical stuff, told in a style more in line with the times. The verses were five characters long and later seven. And the source that contains the richest reservoir of Gushir poetry from that time is the 19 ancient poems, or Gushir Shijosho. As I just mentioned, every major style of Chinese poetry always had some compilation or anthology that everyone will lionize as the definitive greatest hits package from that particular genre. Nineteen ancient poems contain the cream of the crop of this lyric poetry from the Eastern Han. No author or editor named for this work, and all nineteen made it to the Wenxuan, or selected works, which we'll talk about next episode. Now, everything that was starting to happen in the Western and Eastern Han is going to percolate over the next several centuries during the Three Kingdoms and Six Dynasties periods. This was the time when Buddhism and Taoism started having a very great influence on the poetry of the day, not to mention a whole lot of other things, too. What began as relatively simple and straightforward verse in the Han began to get more ornate and flowery during this time. And by now, calligraphy and painting had become so intertwined with poetry, it had almost become one single art. Though various people mastered one over the other, it went without saying, if you were high-born, you were schooled in all three. Yeah, there was archery, horseback riding, music, and other athletics, but painting, poetry, and calligraphy? Yeah, those were the big three. And how expert you were in any of them had a pretty big impact on your stature amongst your peers. In our remaining time for this episode, let's discuss the three Cao's, Cao Cao and his amazingly literate and talented sons, Cao Pi and Cao Jert. Besides his fame and reputation as the most famous and powerful man in China during his time, end of the Han, Cao Cao was also a respected man of letters, and a few of his poems managed to survive into our time. In the show notes, I listed a book of some of his poetry. Cao Pi, he was Cao Cao's honorable number two son, and the first emperor of the kingdom of Wei, one of the three kingdoms. Aside from being quite an accomplished poet in his own right, he was, like his father, a great benefactor to poets and scholars alike. His brother Cao Zhe was a most accomplished poet. He was never able to make much of his political career, even with Cao Cao as his father. Cao Pi yeah, always had his eye on him. So Cao Zhe instead is remembered for his literary contributions. Among them, the Wu Yan Shi, five character poems, or as they called them in the trade, pentasyllabic line verse. Five character poems and Jian An poetry, that's what defined these third century times in China. They were quite different from the grandiose and over-the-top rhapsodies or Fu poetry that had been so beloved during the Han. The poetry that was most heard in their day was called Jian An poetry. Jian An, because that was the era of the Han Dynasty, the final era of the final emperor. It ran from 196 to 220. And after the Cao's put him away and established their own Cao Wei dynasty, the poetry that had burst onto the scene took this 
Jian'an name from this era that was synonymous with the last years of the Eastern Han Dynasty. I'll just re-mention, every emperor's reign would be subcategorized by eras that took on names that sort of suggested something about that time or what it might portend and would be sort of a slogan for that emperor. So Jian'an was just the name chosen by the Han Xian Emperor, the last one and longest reigning of the Eastern Han. Longest reigning puppet, that is. You might have heard in Japan news recently, they still use this traditional era name for their emperors, and they just announced the name of a new era on May 1st, 2019. The Reiwa era will begin, and the Heisei era comes to an end. It was here with this Jian'an style that Chinese poetry decidedly broke with the traditional verse that had been written since the Zhou and into the Western and Eastern Han. In Chinese, they call this style of poetry Jian'an Fenggu. And besides the three Cao's, there were also many others of renown uh, for their poetry skills, Wang Chan and Liu Zhen among them. And those two were part of a famous band of brothers known as the Seven Scholars of Jian'an, the Jian'an Qizi. These were the men of the day who received the highest acclaim for their literary achievements during Cao Pi's reign. The poetry they yielded and those of the Cao's are considered some of the best representative work of Jian'an poetry. And as I said, Jian'an poetry was a major step towards what would happen later in the Tang. Each of these seven scholars had you know, particular acclaim in certain literary and poetic styles. They also called this Jian'an poetry banquet poetry. And the poetry from the Jian'an period and all the imitation works that followed was indeed featured at banquets and social gatherings of elites and royals in their capital at Yecheng, modern-day Handan. And from some of this poetry, historians have been able to glean quite a bit about the kinds of gatherings they had back then, you know, what went on and what people felt about it. This Jian'an poetry provided a small window into the last two decades of the Han and into the Three Kingdoms era. So we see how the earliest poetry, the Shi Jing and Chu Ci, led to the Fu style that led to other styles, and now with this Jian'an style that was inspired by the Yue Fu poetry, you can now begin to see how ancient Chinese poetry developed. And almost all these works are available today, most of them in translation. The names of Cao Cao, Cao Pi, and Cao Zhi are inexorably tied to Jian'an poetry. Aside from their collective greatness and the poems attributed to them, the Cao's became the standard that many successive emperors would try to surpass as far as their efforts to style themselves as enthusiastic patrons of the arts. Some of these, besides the Cao's and the Han Emperor Wu, who we spoke of already, there's also the Emperor Wu of Liang, Tang Xuanzong, Song Huizong, to Qianlong, just to name a few. Let me also mention the Seven Sages of the Bamboo Grove, the Zhu Lin Qi Xian, the Seven Sages, the Seven Worthies. Their story takes place during the terrible 220s, post-Jian'an era. 
Death of the Han, start of Cao Wei, and the bloody Three Kingdoms period. But if you were a poet or musician, this was really a good time. These seven sages of the Bamboo Grove were seven educated aristocratic men who had, in varying fashion, come up through the ranks. But as you know, by the time they entered the game, government was a nest of vipers wherever you worked. So these men, inspired greatly by Taoism that was just now spreading with much greater velocity, walked away from the stress of being an official and the perceived shackles of Confucianism or having to be on the government's payroll. They left the city Luoyang and went out into nature in a Thoreau kind of a way. And their way to live life purposely was to get juiced all the time and engage in many an intellectual's pastime. Drunken parties with plenty of witty repartee and poetry flying back and forth. They've been compared to hedonists or hippies. You could say they turned on and dropped out. Sort of what they did. And they loved their tipple. One of the seven was Ranji. Ranji's father was Ranyu, one of the seven scholars of Jian'an, the Jian'an Qizi, who I mentioned about a second ago. When it came to poetry, greatness sometimes ran in the family. Ji Kang sort of had center stage amongst this group. Each of the seven had something about them besides their poetry. Ji Kang, for example, was a Guqin master. I bet Robert Van Gulick had all his records. Though not everyone mastered it, the ability to play the Qin was another skill that was sort of a given as far as scholars, elites, and nobles went. Ranji, in order to keep his distance from the royal palace, would style himself as an alcoholic who was too far gone all the time to carry out any government service. And the wine brought him solace in his contemplations about the world and all its imperfections. This is one of those things way before the internet and video technologies, file them under who the heck knows. But they too were a band of literati who all lived at the same time. Their story is the stuff of legends and folklore, and not a small amount of speculation either. These guys in their time, and long after I might add, were remembered for their story that actually grew into an entire literary and artistic motif. Yeah, you can see many paintings of these seven sages, and there were also poems as well that alluded to these same Julin Qi Xian, and not just in Chinese painting, in Japanese painting as well. There's a lot of claimants to the actual historical bamboo grove from those third century days. I'm sure if you wander around the outskirts of Luoyang, you might run into a few. And as we get closer to the Tang, we can now see how everything was slowly evolving and how the three Cao's, father and his two most famous sons, through the works they left behind and as benefactors to the literati of their time, they helped move things forward. And these gatherings, like the Seven Sages in the Bamboo Grove and others who followed, left behind a record of greatness and were immortalized in later poems and paintings. They also served as this model for successive generations who look to them, perhaps in their frustrations, you know, walking the wheel in government service, as something they aspired to. 
Well, I don't want to say anything, but I think let's just conveniently put the bookmark in here. And in part three, we'll get to the actual Tang Dynasty part of this little series on the history of Tang poetry. It's about time. Maybe we'll get to the lives of some of the greats, Li Bai, Du Fu, Wang Wei, and a few others. Don't walk away mad. Before I go, I want to give a long overdue plug for a new China podcast. This one flies under the prestigious SupChina banner, and it's called China Econ Talk. The host is Jordan Schneider, one of the young generation of emerging China specialists like Matt Sheehan and others of the Amerikansky persuasion. I just listened to his show the other day, cover to cover with the venerable legal legend Dan Harris, a great one if there ever was. He has great guests and asks intelligent questions. China Econ Talk, Jordan Schneider, part of the SupChina Empire. First time I heard the music intro for China Econ Talk, I thought, you got to be kidding me. You can't do that. This isn't going to work. Now I can't stop singing it in my head. Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles, Cali. Oh, baby, summer's here, 84 degrees outside. A mere taste of what's yet to come. Come on back again next time, would you? And join me for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.